Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, where each season we select six movies all related to a single theme. We examine the history of the people in front of and behind the camera, try to make sense of how and why the movie was made, and then discuss each one in way too much detail to see if they're any good. I'm Chad Cooper, and along with my co-host, Bo Ransdell, this season, it's Live from New York, where we are taking on six movies featuring characters from the sketch comedy television show, Saturday Night Live. Over the years, Saturday Night Live has produced numerous comedy teams that stood out as iconic pairings of comedic talents who created incredibly memorable characters. Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi gave us Jake and Elwood Blues, Billy Crystal and Christopher Guest, Always hated it when that happened as Frankie and Willie, Mike Myers and Dana Carvey exploded as Wayne and Garth, and Tina Fey and Amy Poehler paired up as Sarah Palin and Hillary Clinton, as well as co-anchoring Weekend Update and eventually going on to star in two, well, not directly, Saturday Night Live-inspired feature films. There are some performers that, when paired with the right partner, make magic that's so unique and so brilliant that it is impossible to forget. There are other pairings, eh, not so much. Which brings us to our sixth and final episode of this season, as we take a look at another comedy duo from Saturday Night Live, as Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan donned their signature rayon suits to go clubbing in the 1998 feature film, A Night at the Roxbury. So let's turn it over to the yin to my podcasting yang, the always brilliant and oh-so-charming Mr. Bo Ransdell, who will help us get past the bouncers, into the VIP room, and hopefully some directions to the after party for episode six. It was March 23rd, 1996. Phil Hartman, God bless him, had returned to host Saturday Night Live with the Gin Blossoms on board as musical guest. Hartman reprised his Bobby Coltsman character, a rip on self-important drama coaches, and even did a turn as Frankenstein on Weekend Update. No one paid much attention to another sketch, nestled in with the Charlton Heston and Jesse Jackson impersonations, in which cast members Chris Kattan and Will Ferrell brought a pair of characters from their time at the Groundlings onto the stage in Studio 8H of 30 Rockefeller Plaza. What would become known as the Roxbury Guys featured Catan and Farrell standing against a bar, frequently wiping their noses, and failing to get women to dance with them. The impetus for this sketch had come from simple observation. Out drinking one night, Catan and Farrell spotted a guy bouncing with the music alone at a bar. As they watched, he both attempted to find a woman to dance with and was summarily rejected again and again. Farrell said of him, quote, He was trying to be part of the scene, but he'd try and try and come up with nothing. He was really out of his element, a dorky fish in glitzy water. The sketch appeared, but it didn't hit the cultural nerve it would eventually reach. That elevation needed a special ingredient, and that ingredient was Jim Carrey. On May 18th, 1996, the Super Hot Carry was hosting in support of The Cable Guy, the Ben Stiller-directed dark comedy we may need to visit on this very show someday. Carey joined Catan and Farrell for the return of the Roxbury Guys, this time including the now-iconic Hathaway song, What is Love, as part of the mix. So, let's take a second to walk through the sketch 
and see what makes these characters tick, or at least what made them popular. We start at 10 p.m. with the trio in a car, the wipes at the nose suggesting some cocaine in play, while What is Love plays. At 10.20, we hit the China Club, where they strike out until the trio is kicked out after dancing with a woman in a way that is more suggestive of sexual assault than the Charleston. At 10.45 p.m., they're smoking and back on the road, where they find their way to a high school prom at 11 p.m. Kicked from there after continuing their assault of underage girls, they hit the road again at 11.20 p.m., where they talk with one another on their cell phones and probably toss those phones out the windows. At 11.30, they crash a wedding where they do their hump dance, not to be confused with the Humpty Dance, which is, of course, your chance to do the hump, with the new bride and are, of course, kicked out again. At 11.45, we're back on the road and find our way to a nursing home where the boys feed old women in time with the beat of the song and end up back in their car after, each of them with an elderly woman in tow. The sketch ends with Carrie discovering a set of false teeth in his mouth after making out with his septuagenarian hottie, announcing, Souvenir, and the trio cries out, Score. And that's it. That's the whole damn sketch. It's worth noting, Carrie is particularly aggressive in his actions in this sketch, giving the scene a very dark vibe, in contrast with the more tame later sketches that seem less, I don't know, rapey? But it begs the question, what was the big deal about these characters that it prompted a movie? The answer to that, I think, lies with the desire Lorne Michaels had to spin off several of the more popular SNL characters into film. Not counting the Blues Brothers, that was released way back in 1980, it was a real movie with John Landis directing and a glut of soul and R&B legends along for the ride, not to mention Princess Leia herself as the scorned woman, it wasn't until 1992 that an SNL character scored big again with the release of Wayne's World. And hit it big they did. With a $20 million budget, the movie grossed nine times that on release. It was a massive hit. And a year later saw the release of The Coneheads, not as big a hit. Then Wayne's World 2, which underperformed. Then It's Pat, which grossed a paltry $60,000 domestically. Stewart Saves His Family, which netted less than a million in box office returns, Blues Brothers 2000, which made only half its money back, and then, inexplicably, SNL Studios launched its shingle with A Night at the Roxbury, theoretically placing more creative control and thus more money in the hands of Lorne Michaels at all. Also on board to produce the film version of the Roxbury sketch was Amy Heckerling, and if you don't know that name and you're a fan of 80s and 90s films, shame on you. Heckerling was a graduate of NYU's film school before traveling to Los Angeles where she struggled to get a feature film greenlit with her as director, despite her short film, Getting It Over With, being well-received as a calling card. She was finally given an opportunity to direct a feature film based on memoirs from a Rolling Stone reporter named Cameron Crowe. The movie was Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and while the studio seemed to have no idea how to market it or what to do with it, the movie became a giant hit, releasing into more theaters over the weeks following its release. Heckerling stumbled after that with the gangster film spoof Johnny Dangerously, but got back on a successful track by directing National Lampoon's European Vacation, and then before the 80s were done, 
she scored her biggest hit with the talking baby comedy, Look Who's Talking. But wait, that's just the 80s. She scored again by directing and co-writing Look Who's Talking 2 and then produced Look Who's Talking Now. But it was in 1995 that she captured that fast times magic once more with an adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma set in modern-day Beverly Hills. The movie was clueless, and it was a big, big deal. Like Fast Times, it launched the careers of a number of young actors and even found some success as a television spinoff. It was around this time that Heckerling came on board to co-produce A Night at the Roxbury. Heckerling said she liked the characters of Doug and Steve Butabi, who, she said, were oafish and lovable and not at all mean. I, I suppose. Heckerling didn't direct the movie, at least not on paper. That fell to John Fortenberry, whose claim to fame at that point was editing for Broadway Video, the company that now produces Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show, Portlandia, and a ton of other shows. At the time, though, Broadway was making a mint in selling best-of compilations of SNL stars, a few of which I own myself, and I still recommend the best of John Belushi. If you don't remember what all the fuss was about when it came to that SNL actor, check that video out. Fortenberry would go on to direct Polly Shore's Jury Duty, but he found more success with television directing, working on hit shows like The King of Queens and Everybody Loves Raymond, and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It's worth noting that there is much dispute over how much of Roxbury Fortenberry directed. In much the same way, Steven Spielberg is believed to have directed much of Poltergeist, while Toby Hooper got the credit, and heaps of cocaine. Heckerling is believed to have directed several scenes from A Night at the Roxbury, with Fortenberry being the only name on the director's title card. Likewise, Jim Carrey himself was supposed to have added some to the script for Roxbury. Some interesting cast notes. Lonnie Anderson, who you may remember from the date rape scene in Stroker Ace, shows up as Doug and Steve's mother, her last feature film appearance, unfortunately. Chaz Palminteri, a very fine actor, plays an uncredited role as the club owner Benny Zadir. And Dan Hedaya, uh, who plays Doug and Steve's father in the film, is a fine actor himself who is really kind of slumming it here. If you want to see him at his best, check out the Coen Brothers' remarkable feature debut, Blood Simple, in which he plays a sleazy, cuckolded bar owner who is harder to kill than Steven Seagal. Also, Ava Mendez gets her first feature role here as a bridesmaid, a beautiful actress you probably know from Fast Five and Hitch and the other guys. And you'll recognize a lot of these faces, and it was particularly fun for me to see Christopher Guest regular Jennifer Coolidge here as a police officer and not being the usual brainless character she came to play so well in later work. Regardless, the film was not critically well received upon its release. In his review, Roger Ebert wrote the very funny opening, quote, Sometimes a movie is so witless that I abandon any attempt to think up clever lines for my review and return in defeat to actually watching the film itself. I approach it as an opportunity for meditation. My mantra is, ugh, ugh. Despite the critical lambasting, the movie made $30 million, covering its $17 million budget, which paved the way for Superstar a year later, a far superior film, I would argue. And as we draw this season to a close, we pause to reflect on the glory of Saturday Night Live and its feature films. 
To think that we're through with films based on SNL characters may be foolhardy, not just for this show, but in general. It's hard to imagine such a glut of films coming out now based on characters currently on the show, but everything is cyclical and eventually time will turn, 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 and another character will infiltrate the cultural consciousness enough for someone to say, hey, I can make a buck off that. But I believe the story of SNL Studios in the era of Wayne's World and Ladies' Man and Superstar is best summed up by the personage of Chris Kattan himself, one half of the Butabi brothers, who came from an improv comedy background, became a critical part of the machinery that is Saturday Night Live for his seven years there, and then went on to appear in a couple of movies and a lot of television, occasionally donning the rayon suit again for a bit of Remember This for a commercial or SNL guest spot, And that's kind of it for now. He's not the exception, but rather the rule. For every Will Ferrell, there's an Ellen Cleghorn, a Brad Hall, a Rachel Dratch, an Abby Elliott, a Tim Kazarinsky, a Pamela Stevenson, a Brooks Whelan, and you get the point. Saturday Night Live is the place where you can become a star. Or it can be the place you had your at-bat in the bigs. You stare down the pitcher on the mound of would-be celebrity, and you swing with all your might and land the line drive to first where you wait until the umpire, in this tortured metaphor, let's say the umpire is Lorne Michaels, until the umpire calls your team out and you walk back to the dugout, the feel of the lights burning your skin, still lingering, and you wonder when you'll get that next perilous at-bat that may never come. And with that maudlin notion fresh in our heads, let us now turn our attention to the final film of Season 2 of Big Six Movies, 1998's A Night at the Roxbury. Let's do it. Come on. Here we go. Let's wrap it up. Episode 6 and... Bring us it. Welcome back, everyone, to Season 2, Episode 6 of uh, Pick 6 Movies. The film tonight, as mentioned in the introduction, is A Night at the Roxbury. It is the sordid tale of two young lovers uh, who decide that they want to start a club of their own. Um, it is very much uh, breathless, except r- there's no Richard Gere. There is instead a Chris Kattan. I don't understand any of the words that came out of your mouth just then. <laughs> I was once more doing <laughs> fan fiction for the movie I really want to watch instead of talking about A Night at the Roxbury. But we're here to do a job, an unpaid, thankless job, Chad. So uh, we should get this out of the way. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Bo Ranstell. This is Chad Cooper. Hello, everyone. We have journeyed through... A half dozen uh, Saturday Night Live-inspired films. We end on Night at the Roxbury, which may have been a poor decision. Now that I think about it, it feels like we should have landed on its pad. (laughs) That really feels... (laughs) No. (laughs) By the way, somebody... uh, A little catch-up for listeners at home who have been following us this season. It came to my attention via the Facebook that someone is doing... I it's hard to believe these words are coming out of my mouth. It's Pat. The movie is being released in September on Blu-ray. Huh? 
Yeah. <laughs> because we need to preserve that. Like, once the bombs drop or the ozone layer is gone for good or however the hell this all ends up, it's good to know that the best possible version of It's Pat the Movie will exist for prosperity. I, I don't think we had discussed this before, but I can only assume you are overjoyed, I would argue. When you say the movie It's Pat is coming out on Blu-ray, do you mean that they're going to make a copy of It's Pat on Blu-ray? <laughs> no, somebody's job, Chad, was to sit in uh, like a, a, a recording studio of sorts, whatever, an editing bay, making sure that the transfer from the original film was as pristine as possible to get the the highest reproduction, the highest quality reproduction of its path the movie that they can for a Blu-ray release. One one presumes. Now it could be uh instead that someone has one of them rigs where you can just hook up a VHS player mm-hmm. to your computer and record the digital version. Mm-hmm. Of the shitty VHS tape, which would be the proper way to view that film, Blu-ray or no. But they're only making one, right? (laughs) Oh, no. Regular peoples like you and me can just order it. But why would they do that? (laughs) That is a question I've asked myself. But the same company, they announced two releases. And it's just like, I I can't remember the name of the company. The Boys from Brazil? (laughs) It's yeah. The packaging just says, "Is it safe?" <laughs> In addition, two movies are released on on Blu-ray this September by this company. One of them is "It's Pat the Movie." The other one are, the, is is here is my dick. <laughs> no, almost. It is Kazam, starring Shaquille O'Neal. You know, you double feature that, you're going to end up with a gun at your temple before the night's done. Welcome to Trump's America. No shit. So, A Night at the Opera. No, that's a much better movie. A Night at the Roxbury. <laughs> now now I want to see Groucho Marx in this film. <laughs> Groucho and Harpo Marx uh, in A Night at the Roxbury. We, all right, so the movie opens. Let's just get started here. The movie opens on the, the Hathaway song, What is Love? Baby, Don't Hurt Me. What is love? Love is... <laughs> <laughs> and doing it in the butt man i would so much rather be watching the ladies man i'd rather be watching none of this we we get these kind of shitty slow motion shots of people dancing uh at the club and then we go to a club called the billboard live and we find uh our our two characters doug and steve wasabi well, Will Ferrell is Steve and Chris Kattan is Doug. And I, again, I want to just make a, a an executive decision. Can we just call him Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan? Because up until this movie, I didn't know the, the names of these characters. No, and nor should you. Well, okay. So th- this is sort of the, the perfect example of why this movie should never have existed. Because we get in this moment at, at this club, we get the sketch. Which is them standing at the club, <laughs> drinking Quavatier, <laughs> and <laughs> and they're doing the thing of like, hey, you want to dance? You, nope. Yeah, him, me, him. Uh, uh. And then 
they don't dance until someone either reluctantly agrees or or just passes by. And much like an opportunistic predator, they then start dancing with some poor lady and kind of doing pelvic thrusts that are more appropriate to, say, your average rape as opposed to dancing. It's not really kind of like me too. It's more like hashtag you too. Yeah. You got to think that there is, speaking of the ladies, man, there is an equivalent women's group. Like like uh, the one that Will Ferrell led in The Ladies Man, only it's ladies who have been bounced back and forth like a pinball between these two dudes' dicks. Yeah, well, I mean, when Chris Kattan jumps out there and starts, you know, violently banging his crotch on these women, you know, to call it dry humping is an insult to teenagers everywhere. I mean, he just goes over and he's just assaulting this woman. And, and I don't know, his his advances towards these ladies in my opinion makes leon phelps look like an amish gentleman suitor you know they're like excuse me you know <laughs> would you like would you like to see my wang <laughs> like as opposed to <laughs> yeah i'm just gonna go over and bang you on the ass or the crotch you can you can argue that leon phelps was not smooth or certainly not as smooth as he thought he was but the women who wanted him wanted him it wasn't uninvited like the the come on might have been but he seemed largely successful and these two idiots uh are just like you said not it's not even dry humping it's dry thrusting and until bouncers show up and carry them out of there because eventually the police are going to get called and you don't need that in your club when people are going to be doing blow in the bathroom. Speaking of blow, the, the, the thing that they do where they rub their fingers on their nose, I, I wasn't sure if that was like, is that a thing like they do that they're doing coke? Are they checking for boogers? Is it something to do with long nose hairs? Are they just smelling their fingertips? Because, you know, my thought is like, first off, were their fingers in their armpits? Because I hear that doing that and smelling it is a thing for some people. Sure. Mary Catherine Gallagher named. We're check. bringing this all around people. We've been through five. This is number six. And we're going to go back and do a callback from the very beginning up till where we are now. So buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Also, you could argue that the rampant swinging of Garth from Wayne's World 2 is just a more subtle version of the sexual assault that occurs in this film. Yeah. They just don't say swing. And instead of, you know, being three feet away, they decided to to ramp it up a bit. It's kind of like when you see yeah. like Sharknado, it's like, let's do Jaws, but let's just make it insane. <laughs> like, 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 no, don't, don't do that. You know, that said, by the time this episode airs, I will have seen the Meg. As will I. Oh, well. All right, we'll compare notes at a later <laughs> date because that movie looks stupid in a way I can really get behind. Here's eight dollars. <laughs> it's a big shark. How big is the shark? Is it gonna eat people? You can't have my money, <laughs> but that's all I need. If you tell me there's a movie where there is a giant shark, what eats people? Then I am I am plunking down my sweaty fistful of bills uh, to paraphrase Jack Nicholson. But to the co- the point about cocaine. Let's get back to yeah. that. Because I firmly I do believe that the genesis of this was about the blow. And in fact, if you go back to the original sketch, 
that when they do the nose rubbing, there is an audible reaction from the audience recognizing that this is in fact a reference to, Hey, these guys are kind of coked up, which explains their behavior far more than just an itchy nose ever would. And the movie like this is as much as we'll talk about cocaine in the movie, unless we start talking about what we're going to do with our weekends. Mm -hmm. But the movie glosses over what is potentially part of these characters in the sketch, at least, which is that they're, they're all tweaked out on Coke. They're, they're bombing and they're just getting increasingly desperate as the night goes on. I'm going to do a lot of cocaine and go see a giant shark movie. <laughs> I think that's the only way to see the Meg is to see it in 3d and have as much cocaine in your system as is possible without exploding your heart. Why in this movie do they integrate the, like the timestamp? I watched this movie. I, I, I never cared for this sketch. I never found it funny. I never, I didn't like it at all. In fact, as we talked through doing this season, I was like, you know what? Let's just save the worst for last, which I didn't know how bad it's Pat was going to be. If it, to your point, then we would have probably, you know, ended on that, but tying in that device of where they are and what's going on serves no purpose whatsoever in this movie. And so in the first one, you know, we kind of see that they're in this club and it's 10 2 PM. I'm like, Oh, that's important. And it's not, it doesn't matter at all. In fact, none of these, these timestamps make a difference whatsoever. And in the sketch, the reason that it mattered was that it was part of the gag. It was as the night goes on and they go not just to other clubs, but to increasingly more bizarre places to try to meet women and dance with them. Like, you know, we, we talked about it in the intro in the first sketch it's, they start at a club, then they go to a prom, then it's a wedding right. and then it's an old, old folks. Right. Uh, that's funny. It's, it progressively gets more ridiculous and that's, I get that joke. That's funny. Right. And they just do it in the movie because they did it in the sketch and in a very Jeff Goldblum way, what you have to ask yourself <laughs> is they were so worried about what whether they could put all this stuff from the sketch into the movie. They never stopped to think whether they should. How about this? The name of the movie is A Night at the Roxbury. The whole movie should take place over one night where their goal is to get into the Roxbury. They get in, they meet the club owner and they sort of, you know, work out their problems. And at the end, at the end, they get the girl, you know, that should be the entire film. It should be this sort of, you know, watered down pseudo adult version of like, you know, 16 candles, like make it this, this one night thing. I didn't go to the movie, the hangover to see a film where people are constantly getting drunk and waking up hungover multiple times. You know what? I, I'm not going to tell them how they could have made this movie better. They could have made it better by never making it at all. <laughs> Can I give you the tagline for the movie you're describing? Yes, please. On the poster, you, you keep the poster the same, where it's it's Chris Kattan and Will Ferrell in their poses. And, and the tagline is, it's the best night of their lives if they can get it. Oh, my God. Now I want to see. I want to do cocaine and go see that movie. I want to see every movie under the influence of cocaine, Chad. And uh, it's because it helps me not pee. What if this movie had a giant shark in it? Oh, my God. 
if they did the land shark, if they were just like, look, none of, nothing else makes sense in this movie, so why not have the land shark show up at Dan Hedaya's house where he's like, Candy Graham, duh, get the door, you two knuckleheads. That would have been way too smart. So we get back. It, it would have been fun. We get back in the car, and our two heroes are doing their bobblehead thing to what is love, and they're going back and forth. And this time, Chris Kattan is bobbleheading so much that he smashes the window on the passenger side, and, and he says, I broke the window again. And when the glass shattered, I really thought that maybe someone had shot their car window out. And I was kind of secretly hoping that maybe M. Emmett Walsh was up in the Hollywood Hills just taking aim at this random asshole. Like, die, scum. <laughs> right. <laughs> die, random dancing asshole. Because we have the Dan Hedaya connection in this film, M. Emmett Walsh uh, has been on my mind, not just because the poor guy just passed away not long ago, but watching this movie, I can't help but have Blood Simple flashbacks over and over again. Mm -hmm. So I start thinking of like Chris Kattan out in a field somewhere at night trying to push the dirt being scooped on him off. I mean, again, better movies all around. I feel like if I ever went to M. Emmett Walsh's house and I went into his bathroom, the number one thing I would be surprised by is the fact that I couldn't find deodorant anywhere. You would be surprised by that? Yeah. just I would be the surprised by the presence of it. <laughs> right. That's what like looking around like not even an antiperspirant. There's nothing. I give off my own musk. Yeah, we know. Makes women go wild. No, it does not, sir. In Russia, they don't have deodorant. It looks like you've been smuggling dinosaur amber under every shirt you own. Okay? <laughs> My armpit hair went crystal. No, it did not. You smell, <laughs> sir. <laughs> yeah. The thing I would be most surprised to find in his bathroom would be any kind of bathing material at all. I assume that M. Emmett Walsh, he's the kind of guy that waits for it to rain and just strips down and goes outside staring up, shaking his fist at God. You want me clean? Do it yourself, you old man. He calls it, like it's like his baptism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, like, you can tell it's rained in M. Emmett Wal Walsh's house because it doesn't smell like an abattoir. Right. And there are wet footprints, you know, throughout the house. <laughs> I, I like to believe that M. Emmett Walsh never wore a stitch of clothes once the front door of his home closed. Here I am the way God made me. So, um, M. Emmett Walsh, who is not in this movie... <laughs> decides to leave our conversation for a moment because we're going to continue down that tangent. So Will Farrell says that their dad's really going to be pissed off about this window that M. Emmett Walsh didn't shoot out. And um, we now know that these men look like they're, I don't know, they were in their thirties or something and they're The car belongs to their dad. And um, in this movie, Will Farrell is doing the, the best Keanu Reeves impression I have ever seen in my life. And Coupled with that, Chris Kattan is doing the absolute best Chris Kattan impression I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Winona Ryder. <laughs> Take me away from all this dancing. I've got a question for you. Is this the worst movie that Will Ferrell 
has ever been in. And coupled with that, is this the best movie that Chris Kattan has ever been in? I it's been so long since I've seen Corky Romano. It's hard for me to to judge if this is the best movie. But that's Slim Pickens, and I don't mean character actor Slim Pickens. I mean it is tough to gauge where and when Chris Kattan has been good in a feature film. Even though I like Chris Kattan on Saturday Night Live just fine, it's not. A, I, I don't want to come off as a Chris Kattan hater as I've often been accused of on Twitter. The thing that is frustrating about this is that you do have two incredibly funny individuals in Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan, and they're not really allowed to be funny because the characters are so woefully stupid that they're incapable of making comedy. And... You know, to the point about Will Ferrell, I don't know about that because you got the the ladybug. Was he in that, or am I just thinking of the Rodney Dangerfield connection? Because I go from kicking and screaming to ladybugs in a six yeah, degrees he, of Rodney Dangerfield. He was, yeah, he was kicking and screaming. Ladybugs was Dangerfield, some guy from like the Disney Channel or something like that. Yeah, I mean, Will Ferrell kind of rides that line of about half of every movie he's ever made isn't very good. And the other half are very good. So it's, eh, it's a real roll of the dice with that guy. He's like six feet, two inches of chaos. Here's something you don't know about me. And you know, a lot of things about me, but there's a lot of things you don't know. Um, I went to oh, see sure. the movie, the horse whisperer starring, uh, Robert Redford and directed by Robert Redford. And it came out around the time that uh, the Roxbury guys were in their peak. And for some reason, my brain looked at Kristen Scott Thomas and thought she looks just like Chris Kattan. And as I watched the movie with her smile, all I could see was his kind of that <laughs> thing that he does, which by the way, my, <laughs> my, my Chris Kattan is a lot like your M.M. at Walsh. Um, so apologies if people are getting those impressions confused. And all I could see was like, like Robert Redford is, is wanting to make out with Chris Kattan. That wasn't the case. But again, that's, that's all on me. Chris got uh, Chris Ken, the amazing Chris Ken, uh Chris Ken Scott Thomas was actually the secret villain of the most recent Tomb Raider movie. The reason I spoil that is so that people don't watch the new Tomb Raider movie. What was, there was a recent one? Yeah, it came out early this year, end of last, something like that. I, um, I was asleep during that. <laughs> the, the only reason that anyone should ever watch it is uh, celebrated character actor Walton Goggins is in it. Mm, Walter Goggins. Not Walter, Walton. Walton because he's an Walton Goggins who is amazing. He's great in that movie. He's great in everything he's ever done. As far as I'm concerned, big Goggins fan, big Goggins fan where we call ourselves the, the, the gaggle of goggles of Goggins. Um, and no, we don't clearly cause I fucked that joke up, but <laughs> the, the big takeaway is that yes, he is. He is one of the finest speaking of M.M. at Walsh, one of the finest character actors, uh, that, that ever was, and Walton Goggins fits squarely in that mold. He is never going to headline a film, but every time he shows up, he makes a movie better. So now we're at the Mud Club, 
And it is oh, right, this movie. Uh, yeah, it's twelve oh something in the morning. And again, I bring this up because it doesn't matter at all. And we're in the club, and our two idiots um, are telling this story about how they ran into Emilio Estevez at an ATM, and they're talking to these two like semi goth girls at this club and throughout the film they tell this story multiple times over and over and in this scene the golf girls are unimpressed and so chris Catan asks if they want to make out and it's it's really subtle i'm just kidding it's not he's like you want to make out and the girls say no because you know these two guys are just shitheads i have a real hard time of i get that they could have been lovable losers or sort of overreaching their their ability to grasp but in this they're just like violently you know close fucking people and they have no sense of what is going on and it's not really that funny maybe it kind of sort of works in the sketch but it here it's just it's just puzzling you need a couple of things for good characters one you need a reason to like them and this movie forgoes that dares chad dares to forgo that (laughs) to challenge the viewer and so there's no real reason to like these characters because again they're just kind of they're idiots and they're borderline rapists and the the other thing you need is you need some reason to root for the characters And I don't just mean because they're nice guys or whatever, but they have to have a goal. They have to have a stated goal. And it's really fairly deep into the movie before you get a casual mention of what their goal is. But before we get to that, we also have to detour because in an effort to, again, make these characters as stupid and unlikable as possible... After they tell this Emilio Estevez story, they're heading to another club, the Roxbury proper, it turns out, and they get pulled over by Jennifer Coolidge, who is a a police officer, who strolls up to the car and is like, hey, I need to see your license and registration. And by the end of the conversation, first of all, Chris Kattan is encouraging Will Ferrell to be as much of a jerk as possible to her. Which is always a good idea when you're talking to a police officer. Is like, how can I turn this to my advantage? And he refers to her as TJ Hooker with emphasis on the hooker. And you're like, okay, first of all, not a terribly funny reference. And also, you're calling a female police officer a hooker. And every time I've tried that... I've gotten maced. I think maybe in your situation, based on what I know about you, it's not that you called the officer a hooker. It's that you were like, excuse me, hooker. And then they're like, oh, no, no, I'm an officer. You have the right to remain silent. Or did I get that story mixed up? Well, I also would like reach (laughs) through the window and try to grab a breast and say honk like that, because that's kind of an icebreaker I use at parties. And uh, it is not welcome in the police suspect relationship. No, I've learned. no. In the in, actually in the credits, um, Jennifer Coolidge's character is referred to as Hottie Cop, and I, I think that the reason that they that she's called that is because the name um, Sergeant Knockers or uh, Police Officer Auga <laughs> were somehow <laughs> trademarked by by uh, other less than films. And again, 
for what it's worth, you kind of mentioned this earlier, but but you know, she went on to to make quite a few films um, where she sort of played a very flighty, sort of dumb blonde character. And a year after this, she played Stifler's mom in American Pie. And I was just like, is that a step up from this film? Is it a step down? I have no idea. Time will tell me. Maybe it led to future roles. But in this one I saw, I was like, wow, you're behaving like a normal human being dealing with a couple of, you know, functioning morons. Yeah, I I mean, uh, I, I think it's a step up only because the character has a name. Even if the name is Stifler's mom. You think he was called Stifler because he had a stiffy? Of course. But, <laughs> you know, to, to your point, you know, in this movie, it, she is she's called Hottie Cop because you can't actually spell out officer bangs your head with, a sh- with your own shoe. Yeah. It's a really frustrating waste of, it like happens all through this film, a frustrating waste of an actor. Uh, like Jennifer Coolidge is very funny. She has proven that over and over again. And having her not be just an airhead is kind of a nice change of pace. It's just a shame that we see it for, you know, the 45 seconds of this scene and then towards the end of the movie. And she's never really allowed to do anything funny. She's just the the sounding board for Will Ferrell being stupid as Chris Kattan urges him on. So we're at the Roxbury and an overlay font treatment tells us that it's 1:24 a.m. This is a it's it's kind of an important detail later on in the movie. I'm kidding. It doesn't matter at all. Um there's a line to get into the club and the main security guard is human uh brick wall Michael Clark Duncan, aka Green Mile is how he appears in my notes. He doesn't th- this th- deceased actor has been reduced by my idiot brain into a shortened version of the title of a movie where he played a mentally handicapped prisoner. I'm a terrible person, Chad. Is he the only actor to have touched Tom Hanks dick in a movie? If you're excluding Rita Wilson from the role of actors, which I do, um, then yes. Well, I don't. You don't think Robert Loggia got a got a grab during Big? I just think that Loggia was the kind of guy that was like, "Hey, come here, Tommy!" Honk honk. Just you know, between scenes. I'm just thinking as part of this. You know what? No, because um, in Forrest Gump, Jenny reach over. In Forrest Gump, Jenny reaches over and gives it a tug. So you know what? Mystery solved. Tom Hanks has had his dick touched more than once. On film and and probably a lot more off camera. Like I bet that Tom Hanks behind the scenes is a deplorable person. Just <laughs> you know, kind of doing. Speaking of Harpo Marx, you know how Harpo Marx would lift his leg so that you found yourself holding him under his knee. I bet Tom Hanks does that with his dick all the time. When he does it, you know what he says is. I'm the captain now. I think when he does it, Hal from the ladies' man just pops out of the bushes and goes, that's a beauty. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's creepy. Look, Tom Hanks seems nice on the surface and all, but I'm onto him. We're watching you, Hanks. Yeah. (laughs) Tread softly, Hanks. Pick six is on to you. 
I've already got Tom Hanks listed as my number four of people that I'm sad that they're dead uh, behind Tom Petty. (laughs) He's already there. I'm already mourning the loss of Tom Hanks as he's still alive. I'm like, man, that's going to be a sad day when he dies. It will be a national holiday. It should be. Give it three years. Yeah. (laughs) I mean... The only, I'll tell you, the only way that that blow could be softened is if there was a Jesus-like resurrection of Jimmy Stewart the same day. <laughs> and somebody shot him in the head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> yeah, I want my Jimmy Stewart zombie for at least three films. No, it's like, oh my God, Tom Hanks is dead. But wait, Jimmy Stewart has come back. Kapow! Never mind. <laughs> right. It, it's like the tragic ending of Night of the Living Dead. It's like, oh, but wait, we could he was alive. <laughs> oh, I, I'm going to need some brains. So were these two idiots in this movie um, wholly derivative of the Festrock brothers? Because, you know, Steve Martin and Dan Aykroyd created two iconic characters you know that are from czechoslovakia if you don't know what we're talking about then you need to just do your homework get your shit together okay we're dealing with saturday night live movies yeah listeners yeah you know what meet us halfway because those two characters were about you know getting with chicks and swinging and having wild hot american sex i always felt like these characters were just a a present day version of the festrunk brothers but just shitty yeah, I mean the, the charm of those characters. A, it, you know, it's it's Steve Martin and Dan Aykroyd at the one can argue the height of their comedic powers, where they're just ridiculously funny individually. It's such a specific gag. It's very much about these sort of up and coming immigrant class swingers to the New York club scene and m- misunderstanding how relationships work, you know, like saying, I want to see your big American breast, you know, stuff like that is kind of a funny gag. And it's interesting to note that the last Roxbury guys sketch, Steve Martin and Dan Aykroyd show up to reprise their roles as the Festering brothers. Yes. I definitely think it is. If not initially, it certainly became something that followed in the footsteps of that sketch. But you just couldn't do as much with it because the whole gag of Roxbury in, in terms of the SNL sketches was these guys are doing a bunch of blow the night wears on and they go to weirder places trying to get laid. Whereas the Festrunk brothers, the gag was these two guys don't understand the rules of dating. And that's where the comedy comes in. Like the stuff they say is wildly inappropriate, but it comes from a place of this is our impression of American culture and we're trying to fit into that. And so it becomes a a satire of the American dating scene in some level. And whereas this has none of that, I, at least none that I can find. And I was really looking. Yeah. This is not a good movie. The, <laughs> yeah. These characters are bad. That when, when green mile won't let him into the Roxbury, we, Cut from them to a fancy sports car showing up and Richard Grieco 
and some sluts step out of the car and Green Mile immediately lets them in. And for younger listeners, Richard Grieco was an actor um, in a 1990s like television cop drama that was on the Fox network. And it was called 21 Jump Street. And he starred alongside a young Johnny Depp. And this is the show that inspired the movie 21 Jump Street and its sequel 22 Jump Street. And all you really need to know about Richard Grieco is that at the time of this movie's release, he was always a bit of a, an unintentional punchline. He was kind of a, like a D minus celebrity. And in this movie, it feels like that they're playing on this fact as the foundation of our two, you know, dum-dums being in awe of his arrival. Right, but it, you're doubling up on the same gag because you're already doing the the jokes about the run-in with Emilio Estevez. And now you're doubling up with the actual presence of Richard Grieco, who I would argue was, even at the time, less of a celebrity than Emilio Estevez. Absolutely. Emilio Estevez had made Young Guns, Young Guns 2. He had been in Minute Work. He had done that other thing that I can't remember. He had done a lot of stuff. He was in the horror classic, uh, Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. Mighty Ducks. And Maximum Overdrive. Remember when he pumped that gas so much his hand got all bloody? I think about that when uh -huh. I pump gas. I sometimes remember I think when... about that when I masturbate, but I'm like, dude, I got to slow down. Remember when he has like the most awkward sex ever put to film? With the random stranger at the Dixie Boy truck stop. That's my favorite part of the movie. That's the most random sex moment ever put to film? I don't know if it's the most random sex moment, but it is the the most awkward and uncomfortable sex moment. Like, their, their pillow talk in that movie, after uh, getting down to some, some fucking with the truck apocalypse upon them, is just some of the most awkward... Like, her actually calling him Hero in that moment is like you know what speaking of cocaine stephen king had done so much cocaine before during and after the shooting of that film it's amazing that you can't snort it do you remember when burt reynolds had sex with sally field in the end and he was like tantrically fucking her while watching a hula lamp wiggle back and forth. I still say maximum overdrive is creepier. Yeah, I know that's gross. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, Emilio Estevez, they're waiting in line to get into the Roxbury and Catan is telling this story about running into Emilio Estevez again. Then they're creeping towards the front of the line and green mile tells them, Hey, everything's closed now. And that although the dancers inside, they dance just like angels, but uh, they are not allowed in. Then this is where we get the first moment where Chris Catan says, you know, we if we had our own club, we'd never have to wait in line. It's like, well, why didn't you mention this in the upfront? Like, this is still fairly early in the movie, for but to go through all of these various clubs, it seems like the through line of what this movie should be about should have been stated up front. And I hate to keep going back to our prize student of this season, but superstar in the first five minutes of the film sets up everything you need for the rest of the movie. I know we talk a lot about how in our own sad, pathetic way we would make these movies better. 
if you start this movie with these two idiots and their whole thing is we want to go out clubbing and we're going to go to kind of a D-list club, a C-list club, and the Roxbury is the A-list club. And their whole thing is like, someday we're going to own our own club. We're going to do this. We're going to do it the right way. And you make the movie that starts at nine o'clock when they're getting ready and you go through the night and it's essentially, is it um, like night watch or adventures in babysitting or something to where from dusk till dawn, these wacky misadventures occur. They learn a few life lessons. They end up, you know, better people than they were at the beginning of the film. Once the film ends, they find love, they meet a club owner, they get the funding to open their own club. Like that movie kind of writes itself, but this doesn't do any of that. This is just a a couple of shitheads bouncing around from clubs, just assaulting women with their crotches, just being schmucks. You're right. And then we, we go home with them which is something no woman has ever said. Am I right? They wake up late in the morning, the following day, and the alarm clock set by Will Ferrell for Chris Kattan's character is him burying a Twizzler in his nose and then eating it. We've already talked about how disgusting Twizzlers are in this season in the Wayne's World 2 episode, so you can go back and listen to that. Twizzlers are gross. In fact, I yeah. would I would argue that sticking a Twizzler up somebody's nose and giving it a couple of, of twists, adding boogers or snot crust somehow not only improves the taste, but it certainly ups the nutritional value as well. How many times do you think a Twizzler has been in someone's rectum? I, I better Let me rephrase that question. How many times a day do you think a Twizzler is in someone's rectum? In these United States or globally? Uh, Let's keep it to the U.S. 647. That's higher than I would have guessed, but then I started to think about there's got to be someone or a a couple out there or several couples where that's just a fun thing they do. Yeah, I think think of the 647 as I did just kind of some quick math. 622 of those are people by themselves. And then the the majority of the remaining, it's performance art. You think there's some club in Soho where there's some poor guy with like a couple of Twizzlers in his ass, like some jujubes in his nose, cauliflower coming out of his ears. Just sticking shit in his ass and Twizzlers because of the shape and the texture. And I got to be honest, you stick a Twizzler in your asshole and you pop it out, put it in your mouth. Again, you're doing better than just a regular Twizzler. I feel like that is the kind of performance art that only your finer artists like your Gigi Allens would be capable of. Anyway, so they wake up and they go downstairs to meet returning Pick 6 Movies champion Lonnie Anderson, who plays their mother. And uh, this is, uh, you know, as I pointed out in the intro, kind of sadly the last feature film she ever did. She looks great in this movie. Yeah, she's pretty lady. And and not being date raped in this film. Yes. And I just want to go on the record and say, I'm a big proponent of seeing people not being date raped in films. And then we get yeah. to meet their dad, as you mentioned earlier, who's played by Dan Hedaya, who is, you know, for some people, he's he's Nick Tortelli from Cheers um, or the spinoff, the Tortellis, for those who are wanting some bonus points. For me, he will always be Mr. Wahoo Waturi from Joe versus the volcano. And again, like you said, he's kind of slumming it in this movie, um, collecting a paycheck, 
Although, you know, when you see him, he's such a bright spot overall that you can't help deny his sort of abrasive, lovable, shitheaded charm. Yeah, when I see him these days, uh, I think of two films. One is, of course, Blood Simple, because he's absolutely amazing in that movie and has maybe the most horrifying death scene I've seen in a film ever uh, because of how long it goes on and how pitiful it is, which the Coen brothers excel at. See, you know, our discussion on the previous episode of uh, Miller's Crossing and uh, John Turturro in that. But the other I think of which tells you what kind of low life shit heel I am is him as the sergeant or the captain in running scared, which is a movie I have seen within the past six months. If I had to pick a really uh, fringe performance uh, by him, it's the Adams family movie. And it's the moment where they're going to take the burning hot poker and they're going to burn uh, Gomez Adams. And then he says, is this going to smell? <laughs> Those movies are wonderful. <laughs> I, I've i been laughing for about two weeks now because I, I caught a little bit of uh, Adam's family values. And it was the scene at, at camp where Wednesday and Pugsley are sent. And there's the girl uh, who, when they're talking about doing the play, she says, oh, I'm going to be the victim. And Wednesday says, all your life. It is one of the most brilliant lines in any movie ever. I can't see anyone selling Girl Scout cookies without thinking about those movies. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're just, it's so perfectly cast. Everybody in that movie is bringing it. But let's get back to a movie that's not nearly as good. Not at all. Where Dan Hedaya is telling his dumbass kids to meet him later at the store. So uh, we followed them out on the town as we get a healthy dose of the Bee Gees staying alive. Mm -hmm. So they're dressed alike. And let me ask you this, Chad. How many days in a row could we dress the same before people thought we were either A, crazy, or B, mentally handicapped and being dressed by a responsible adult. <laughs> just like you and I walking down the street. Uh-huh. And just behaving as they do, dressed the same. Does this include preventing a woman from walking down the sidewalk and then accosting her in such a way that we are arguably demanding her phone number, address, social security number, as well as her breast size and sexual position of preference. Yes. I, I felt like that was a given, but sure. Yeah. As they're walking down the street and they're playing this song, they ask this woman if she's from out of town and her phone number. And at this point, she just rightfully kicks Will Ferrell in the dick and then hits Chris Kattan with her purse and it's just like, of course you should. You should be allowed to walk down the street without having these two Tweedledee and Tweedledumber shitheads, you know, want to know like what it's going to take to get in your panties. They're dressed better than this, but it's the kind of mentality that leads to the purchase of an FBI female body inspector t-shirt when you're on vacation at Panama City or something. It's it's that kind of assholery, if I may, be, may use a scientific term for a moment. 
for for certain people who may be listening to this show that that are not from the United States, there are certain areas where T-shirts are sold that <laughs> that feature. <laughs> Let's call it jokes that you're like, oh, this will be hilarious if I if I wear this. And I'm talking about your your Myrtle Beaches. I'm talking about <laughs> your Gatlinburg, Tennessee's. There are certain beach communities where you sit and you're just like, this is just going to be hilarious. Everyone will see my shirt and realize that's a funny guy. And you're right. not, you're- but it's it's not all beaches because it's not like you would go to Martha's Vineyard, say. And have someone say, well, that's a real shop, Big Johnson shirt you got there. <laughs> it's it's always the southern part of the country that seems to revel in dick-related t-shirt comedy. <laughs> hey, mother, gentleman over there says he's uh, giving out free mustache rides. Says that two for one, mother. Better get on board. Matt over there's a federal bikini inspector. Look out for him, especially... Once summertime comes around. <laughs> Likely to get frisked, mother. Ah, I believe I spy a Spuds McKenzie shirt, mother. He was a fine animal. Um, I don't know where that accent went <laughs> towards the end of that. I apologize to Martha's Vineyard residents and uh, and also Spuds McKenzie. Rest, <laughs> rest in peace. You know, he's he's with us in spirit always. Uh, Back to our shitty movie. We get to work, yeah. and these two idiots... Are there and a customer comes up to buy something with a credit card and Chris Kattan runs over and he he calls in to verify the card and he asks for a specific uh, credit card agent to make this unnecessary verification and he starts talking with this operator um, who is known in the credits of the film as Credit Vixen. And he mm-hmm. makes these like lewd sexual innuendos about how he can swipe the card all night long and just keep it going. And in watching the movie, I really expected that their relationship would be later fleshed out as though he had like maybe known her personally previously. Maybe they were like a like a high school uh, sweetheart or maybe she was an old flame or someone that he knew. But that's not the case. He just knows her voice from calling up to verify credit cards and he wants to have like what is essentially PG rated phone sex in front of other paying customers at his father's business. Well, and and let's also point out the fact that the reason he has to make this call at all is because he is too incompetent to successfully operate a credit card not not even the machine, just a credit card doesn't seem to understand that there's a stripe on one side and yes just all you got to do Chad is just swipe the thing you've done it I've done it we've all done it this guy is too much of a moron to put that together we didn't talk about his dad's business and his dad has a business where he he sells fake flowers like silk flowers it's it's like the shit that they sell at Michaels in that one tiny corner of the store. That's all his his their dad's store sells. Oh, hold on, hold on, no, no, that's not true. They also sell a shit ton of cocaine. <laughs> right. The, yeah, this place is 100% a front. Mr. Waha Waturi has some shit going on in the back room. Right, right. L- let me just rephrase that. His father sells a shit ton of cocaine, 
And over in the corner, you can buy a flower. <laughs> yeah. Instead of Michael's, it's Yayo's. This is this movie is not good. Once Chris Catan all but drives a customer from the store, you know, Dan Hedaya is not happy about this and kind of boots them out of the store. And then Molly Shannon shows up and fingers crossed to save this movie, question mark. But it turns out she just wants to make out with Will Ferrell. And we learn that Dan Hedaya wants Will Ferrell and Molly Shannon to get married because her dad owns the lamp store next door. And he has a dream of knocking down the wall and being the first lamp slash fake plant slash cocaine store in the greater three cities area. If I told you there was a store where you could go and buy a lamp and silk flowers and as much cocaine as you want, and then right next door, there's a movie theater that shows nothing but giant shark films. How quickly would you get there? <laughs> I mean, you don't really have to sweeten the pot much <laughs> beyond there's a movie theater that just shows killer shark films. If you broaden that to killer sharks, alligators, and octopi, now you, you're basically saying this is where you live now. When Molly Shannon shows up in this movie, the clouds part, a ray of sunshine comes down, and the heavens sing. She is fantastic in this movie, up until a point. And in it, her character, Emily, is a dream come true. She's smart. She is funny. She It's not that she wants to date Will Ferrell. She wants to fuck him. She is ready to go right here, right now. And this isn't like like reading between the lines. She is all but saying she is someone who wants to get laid and she's ready to go. Yeah, it, it's pretty much the dream I had in middle school. Uh, is that the proper time? Probably not. I'm probably selling myself a little young there. Wait, did you um, say in middle school or in a middle school? <laughs> in middle school, as if I were... Of the age to attend middle school at the time. But now that I think about it, that is wildly inaccurate. <laughs> I was just, I I was just in a middle school and uh, was promptly asked to leave as I discussed with the random children. Who wants some cocaine? I got shark movies. <laughs> right. Hey, hey kids, who wants to see Jaws the Revenge and get fucking wrecked? Right? Am I right, kids? Speaking of kids, did you recognize who played uh, Emily's dad in this? Uh, no. It was Dwayne Hickman, Dobie Gillis himself. I did not put that together, mostly because I've only ever seen two episodes of The Life and Times of Dobie Gillis. Was one of them the one where he did a lot of cocaine and um, ended up breaking into a paint store? It was <laughs> no, although that that is shockingly familiar, and I should watch that because it seems relevant to my own life. It, I, it was the one where Maynard G. Krebs was high. I don't know if you remember that one. <laughs> you know what? We reference a lot of shit that's relevant to us, but I remember watching Dobie Gillis and being like, "What the hell is Gilligan doing? Is Gilligan high? This is basically like." What was going on with Gilligan before he hit the island? Why are they calling him Maynard? This doesn't make any sense. Maynard G. Krebs 
was the proto Shaggy from Scooby Doo. Absolutely, there is a direct line between the two. <laughs> and kids, ask your parents about Dobie Gillis, and even they won't know what the fuck you're talking about. No, you're gonna have to go to grandparents, maybe great grandparents, even a Shaggy. If you can find Bob Denver, that's the guy to ask. He can give you the scoop on Dobie Gillis. And I can tell you right now, Bob Denver, he's holding. Oh, 100%. (laughs) Bob Denver has had fine, fine gank money since the 1950s. Yeah. So that, that guy was part of the beat generation. And that means heroin. All right. So after Ray of Sunshine, Molly Shannon departs, we end up following our our guys to the gym where they hook up with Lachlan Munro of Freddy versus Jason fame. And uh, he is worried about, uh, I think it's Will Ferrell's triceps in this scene. Lachlan Munro is one of those actors that you see pop up in movies where you're like, hey, that guy, I remember him from something. And for me, it's Freddy versus Jason. For me, it was like, hey, is that Gary Busey from the young Gary Busey movie in the Gary Busey story? <laughs> he, he, like, if he and Jake Busey went into one of them fly pods together, you would get a Gary Busey. I, I would cast him as the young Gary Busey in the in the Gary Busey story. And in the Gary Busey story, Lachlan Monroe plays Gary Busey up until the motorcycle accident. And then when the bandages come off, it's like full on present day Gary Busey. That would be a much better film than the one we're discussing and one that I kind of want to happen now. Because I want to see Lachlan Monroe as Gary Busey as Buddy Holly. <laughs> it, it was kind of kind of like in, in the movie Adaptation where in the background they're filming being John Malkovich, that you would have him playing Gary Busey, playing Buddy Holly in the movie where he's all of these characters at the same time. Is that what's going on in your scenario? Yeah. Basically anything that's not A Night at the Roxbury is what I'd rather be watching. I'd like to watch Inception with Gary Busey playing all the characters. (laughs) <laughs> oh, somebody got into my head, y'all. <laughs> I think it was me. Wigs, and he has like puppets on his hands, and Wilson shows up. I just want to see that crazy expression of his slowed down and all slow moified so that you can see every twitch of the lip as it exposes those, you know, Mr. Ed teeth. Uh,. <laughs> And I love Gary Busey. I am not criticizing the man. As I've mentioned before, I have seen uh, the film Silver Bullet probably about 112 times. And every time I watch it, the thing that I come away from is, man, I love Gary Busey in that movie. (laughs) And and, And what sells me on it is him giving the fireworks to Corey, uh, what's the dead one? Haim. Corey Haim. And saying, now I'm giving this to you because no asshole should win over the good guys if you can dig that. And that is the point where I fall in love with Gary Busey every time. It's hard not to fall in love with that kind of honest, vulnerable, 
truism. There's a lot of truth uh, pre-motorcycle accident in Gary Busey. And after that, it's just a lot of crazy shit. Uh, but I, I can appreciate that, too. Yeah, post-motorcycle accident. It's like uh, Yoda on mescaline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's full of a lot of wisdom, but don't take any of it. <laughs> it's going to lead you down a, a dark, dark path. So Lachlan Monroe plays a character named Craig. Craig has been friends with our, our two idiot protagonists for, for quite a while. And Will Ferrell says that, you know, that they had been buddies for all seven years of high school, which means that three out of the four years of high school, they failed a grade. And this is, you know, and assuming that they didn't fail any preceding grades, this means that they were 21 years old when they graduated high school. That is pathetic. Well, it also goes to show you why they're so weird around women. Because at a certain point, like, going to the prom was statutory rape. Or they had all the booze. Right. They were very popular for a while because they had a CD player and an ID. Will Ferrell is wearing this full body spandex blue suit. And he's essentially a couple of antenna and a blue cow away from being this deflated version of the tick. Oh, see, there's something else I'd rather be watching. We go to the beach where we get some TNA shots because that's what you do at the beach. And Chris Kattan is pissed off at Will Ferrell because Will Ferrell seems to actually give a shit about his dad's business. So I want to jump in here. There is a lot of TNA shots at the beach. And I don't think that anyone with whom you see their tits and or ass signed waivers to be in this film because you never see their faces. <laughs> and it's it's really the sexy equivalent of when television news does a story on obesity and they always show those big fatsos from the neck down just <laughs> like waddling around eating Doritos, Locos, Tacos, and Cinnabons, or whatever shitty food is in their fat, meaty paws, just to prove the point that America is full of lazy, fat fucks. But in this case, it's not like waddling fat thighs of humanity. Instead, it's it's these identityless, large-breasted women and a few well-oiled, muscular men prancing around the beach. Yeah, you can see the extended version of this scene on a home shopping network video called girls unintentionally gone wild. <laughs> it is the barely legal, not because of age, but because of consent. Do you remember years ago, maybe decades ago, almost certainly not, but go on. <laughs> we went to a six flags together and there were these street sweepers walking around, taking pictures of teenage girls with, disposable cameras and we were there and we were like yeah that's creepy and weird i i do recall that and what we should have done <laughs> is alert the authorities we didn't do anything <laughs> no we let it all happen we were complicit in that crime <laughs> i'm so ashamed of myself it's like if you owned a computer repair shop <laughs> And somebody brought you a laptop that had kitty porn on it, and you just fixed it and handed it back. Excuse me. Here's my laptop. It's filled with child pornography. 
Could you help me fix it? Why, certainly, sir. Oh, indubitably. <laughs> would, you, would you like me to make backups of your illegal pornography? By the way, we're running a special. Here's a coupon. It will save you some money and prevent me from putting more dollars into my own pocket. How about a, a solid state drive? You will be able to access your child pornography much faster. <laughs> Now I just have this image of like the mob computer fixer, you know, the guy that, uh, you know, how they, they have them mob doctors you go to when a mobster gets shot Mm -hmm. and on the dark web that there is, you know, this IR hidden IRC channel or something where people are like, Hey man, if you got a lot of kitty porn on your computer, go to Jimmy, he'll fix your computer up. Right. If you know what I'm saying. You know what? There's a business model there. Yeah, it's a big world. Not everyone has a soul. Yeah, but I mean, think about that. If you saw some guy standing out on the street, spinning a giant arrow around, you know, pointing at a business. And when you looked at it, it said, do you have fucked up illegal shit on your computer and it needs to get fixed? We'll do it. No questions asked. $99. Uh huh. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. As even before you said it, I thought the genius marketing of any modern computer shop would be no questions asked. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever you got is fine by us. You're going to have to bump the price on that. It goes from $99 to $999. No questions asked computer repair like if we got to replace the whole thing you know soup to nuts that's gonna cost you a grand (laughs) if all i gotta do is clean the filth off your screen you just got a bunch of tranks and lobos and jerk offs and jackwads rolling in they're like can you fix this for me please Uh, yeah and you know that 80 percent of the problems brought into the store are my keyboard's a little sticky. I, I think 99% of the people who come in are like cash only, right? Of course. <laughs> right, yeah. And then the rest of it, the rest of it is a bunch of like Visa gift cards that are <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally anonymous. Yeah. It's You can also pay in, in uh, burner cell phones. Which are as good as gold in those places. I got I got three Boost mobile phones and a twenty five dollar Visa gift card. I can fix that keyboard for you. All right, we're gonna we're gonna cut all this out because that's too good a business idea. <laughs> you could franchise that, man. Uh huh. Bose no questions asked computer repair coming soon. Spelled with a U. The website is just like shh.com. <laughs> I don't know if you're interested or not, but I was thinking that maybe we could talk about the movie uh, A Night at the Roxbury. Yeah, whatever. So so Chris Kattan and Will Ferrell are uh, uh, strolling down this beach and they're you know wearing like bikini underwear and then that scene's over. It ends with Chris Kattan making Will Ferrell say they're going to get in the Roxbury. Like, forget all this shit about being a responsible adult and working for our dad, which seems to be like, again, fan fiction for this film. If you were making the movie, the logical place to end this would be, oh, they realize that going out and being dumbass clubbers all the time is not where their future lies. And eventually you make it kind of a a coming of age, right? Like 
Chris Kattan maybe finds something that he's really good at doing. Will Ferrell takes over the family business. It, it, you know, you don't make Molly Shannon a monster in this movie. That kind of thing. Anyway, not not what happens. Don't worry about it, listeners. That's how the, that scene ends. And then we cut to them at home getting ready to go out for a night of dumbass clubbing. And they're, uh, Mr. Waha Waturi and Lonnie Anderson are having Molly Shannon and her parents over. And Molly Shannon is singing the Cheers theme because, I don't know, I guess it's funny because Dan Hedaya was Mr. Tortelli. I didn't make that connection that he was on Cheers, but I just want to go ahead and put my stamp of approval. If anyone listening to our voices has never seen this movie, please don't. However, if you do find yourself wanting to watch it, the scene with Molly Shannon singing the theme to Cheers while Dobie Gillis accompanies her on piano, it is hands down the funniest moment in this entire film. The conviction with which she is singing this, I've only seen in in young girl beauty pageants. She is selling this song. I watched this no less than six times, and I had tears streaming down my face watching Molly Shannon sing this this sitcom theme. Yeah, it is. You're right. It, it's probably the funniest gag in the movie, um, and it it has the added pleasure of reminding me of how much I love the show Cheers. You know, win win. <laughs> so Emily gets Will Ferrell's attention. Because he's wearing his tiny bathing suit, the one we were yapping about with him on the beach. He's wearing the same outfit when he comes back into the house. And then Emily comes up and and she tells him that he's got really good, you know, muscle definition and he's really sexy. And she's like, essentially saying like, look, I'll fuck you right now. We can go have sex, you and me. Which seems like that's what they want. Like why he isn't having sex with her makes no sense at all. This is a sure thing. You put yeah. you put a ring on that. She's smart. She's funny. She's pretty. She wants to fuck you. Like like all of this. Like, dude, what are you? You're a moron. Right. She sings the Cheers theme like an angel. Why Why are you sitting on this, idiot? But then Chris Kattan kind of jumps in as sort of the jealous brother, and there's a little you know division there, but it doesn't go anywhere. Kind of, sort of, not really. But don't worry about that. We'll skip over it later. I'm sure. Dan Hedaya. Because they they want to go out clubbing, is like, give me your phones. And uh, my Robert Loja and Dan Hedaya are eerily similar. But the, he takes their cell phones, and Lonnie Anderson, because she's the softie in the relationship, gives them replacement cell phones, but they're the old, like, brick-style, speaking of the movie, Running Scared. The first time I remember seeing one of those uh, big-ass brick cell phones uh in a film was in running scared where uh i almost said Inigo montoya but jimmy smith's in that movie his character probably mendoza doesn't matter i had one of them that uh, billy crystal used to make prank phone calls yes <laughs> <laughs> all right looking for confirmation that's all i wanted so they they take the plant van to the club and Chris Kattan is again saying like, Hey, this is this rite of passage, right? Like we've got to get into the Roxbury. So they go back to the club and they try to bribe Green Mile. It's a semi amusing scene that has been done better in other movies where they're like, well, maybe 
you'd let us in if we brought Mr. Washington with us and Mr. Lincoln. And the where it gets kind of funny is when they get to the change. Yeah. And they're like, you know, Mr. Jefferson and Miss another Mr. Jefferson. And it's kind of a funny gag. It is a it's a funny bit. I I th- I laughed. I was like, this is funny of them sort of whittling it down to the the nickels and dimes and pennies. It was funny. And but of course Green Mile is like, look, you can't bribe me with twelve dollars and seventeen cents. And a nice so, Casio. <laughs> right. So, so our <laughs> heroes, for lack of a better term, go on the hunt for an ATM and in the process of looking for an ATM where they're they're starting uh, it's Will Ferrell driving and Chris Catan periodically yelling, Stop, there's one. Oh no, that's a whatever. You know, and it, it it's either uh, a kiosk for a food or a newspaper stand or something like that, but it's never an ATM. And in the process of all this starting and stopping, they get rear-ended by Richard Grieco, uh, as luck would have it. And Grieco is upset because he's afraid that he's about to get sued by whoever it is who is behind the wheel of this van. And instead, because it's our, our dumb, dumb heroes, they're blown away by the fact that it's Richard Grieco. And through the, the course of the conversation, they're like, hey, we met you uh, briefly at the Roxbury and we're trying to get in. And Richard Grieco, seeing his way out of this sticky wicket, says, I can get you into the Roxbury, which he does. And it's here that they meet um, Roxbury owner Benny, played by Joe Montaigne. Excuse me. No. Chaz Palminteri. Wait. No. Which is it? Who is it? Which one is it? No, it is Chaz Palminteri. Right. Wait, are you sure but it's it not Joe Montaigne? Joe Montaigne? It could be. It could. I mean, it's it's the age old question. Is it Chaz Palminteri or Joe Montaigne? And uh, the the only reason we know it's not Raul Julia is because he's he's dead. When this, when I was watching this movie, I I was just like, "Hey, is that Joe Mon? That's Chaz Palmer. I don't know. Would you like to come into the Roxbury tonight? <laughs> Am I the only one? Is that just me? That I I'm like. I, I don't know why these two people are interchangeable for me in every role they've ever done. Like, which one was on The Simpsons? Which one was in Searching for Bobby Fisher? Which one was in this? Like, I don't know. Well, uh, two of the three were uh, Joe Montaigne, and it's not the two you think. <laughs> <laughs> they're with Benny Zadir is Chaz Palminteri's name, and there we also uh, get a Colin Quinn sighting. Uh, for the first time in this movie. I would love to hear Colin Quinn's thoughts on this movie. I would love to watch this movie with Colin Quinn. I would pay $300 to sit and watch this movie with Colin Quinn. We didn't film any cocaine, but we were all in cocaine, okay? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Colin Quinn is one of those guys who's incredibly funny, but not a very funny actor. I love Colin Quinn. I do too. Yeah. But he should only play Colin Quinn in things. Yeah, and he's not doing That is his I, I don't know what he's doing in this besides getting paid. Richard Grieco fucks off and and pretty much leaves the movie until the end. And Chris Catan gives Benny Zadir his idea for his own nightclub, which is an inside out nightclub where 
where when you're waiting in line, you're surrounded by dancers and it's kind of posh. And then you go inside and it's street signs and it looks like a road. And, uh, you know, again, it's all uh, crisscross. It's all dipsy doodled. And Benny Zadir loves the idea. And while they're chit-chatting with Benny Zadir, a couple of, let's call them gold diggers, um, <laughs> are, are spy them talking to Benny Zadir. And they're like, well, if, if those guys are sitting with him, they must be somebody. So they approach Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan and invite them to dance. And there's kind of a funny bit where... They're like, oh, okay, you don't want to dance. And they're like, no, 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 we just said we did want to dance. There's an extended dance sequence here that I did find pretty funny because I think Chris Kattan is a good physical performer. And just watching him spaz out on his dance partner, I found entertaining. But it goes on a little bit too long. And, uh, you know, it's a one-note joke, much like the entire film which is that hey these guys are idiots and the world around them doesn't seem to want to tell them as they start dancing with these two women you know there's there are these moments where these two women are able to kind of offset um our idiots sort of spastic violent dick attacks and they, they they again they kind of begin to sort of do this choreography where they're dancing together and the girls start to mimic our hero's weird vogue uh, esque hand movements and their strange bobblehead. And at this point in the movie, I kind of thought, well, maybe our heroes have uh, found their female counterparts, these sort of two vapid female morons. But that's not the case. You know, these two women are just vapid and they're not morons. To your point earlier, they're, they're just a gold digger. Yeah. And I, God, it, it's so hard not to quote Kanye there and it would be oh so inappropriate. They, uh, yeah, th- they end up. Um, in Zadir's limo, Benny with him, Benny, yeah. Benny and the gold diggers and Chris Kattan and Will Ferrell describe to them because we're not doing cocaine in this movie. Instead, we stop off to get whippets, which is the cheap, like middle school version of cocaine where, where you get really, really high for about two and a half seconds, thanks to the the nitrous oxide inherent in those, you know, ready whip spray cans. Did you ever do that? Oh, yeah, of course. Did you I really? I worked at a grocery I, store. Yeah. I remember being with a group of people and watching them do this, and I'm just like, you guys are getting fucked up on Cool Whip? Like, have you not heard yeah. about alcohol? I mean, it's awesome. Like, alcohol <laughs> is... It's readily available. You know what I mean? You make it sound like the two are mutually exclusive. We did the whippets at work because I worked at a grocery store and we never sold one can of ready whip that could propel whipped cream out of itself with any kind of force or or real velocity because me and the rest of my degenerate friends... No, we there was no beer sold there. Oh yeah, yeah, I know the grocery store you're talking about. Yeah, they didn't yeah, sell beer there. Right. Did they sell like pickles, pig feet, or back bottom gristle lumps? Yes, there was plenty of packages of sauce if you wanted to indulge in that delicacy. People will do there anything was... to get fucked up, man. Yeah, and you know, again, we were we were teenagers and, you know, it would be like, "Hey, we got a new case of ready whip." So, Around about 8.15 before we start closing up shop for the night. 
We're going to have ourselves a good time. We're going to put on a Pink Floyd song because there ain't no way the Whippet effects are going to last through an entire album. I remember being in elementary school and then there were kids that would just at recess would just go out and spin around in a circle until they just fell down. And then, you know, later in life, you were just like, yeah, those kids are drug addicts. I mean, if you're a parent and you see your child engaging in that behavior, you check them right into rehab right now. Don't get ahead of that. Either that or you just keep them between the lines. <laughs> you're just like, if you're going to do it, do it at home. That never works, by the way. Well, no, because the last thing, you know, as I've mentioned on this show, I got high with my mom once and it was fucked up and I never wanted to do it again. I felt terrible at the time. And that's why you can't you you can't be a cool parent. You have to be the teetotaler. You have to lie to your children about the drugs you've done. And you have to make them swear and lie to you that they've never done drugs. Yeah. That is that is the healthy relationship parents and children share. <laughs> so Chris Kattan, who is paying for the whippets, his card... No, he, hold on, hold on. Chris Kattan isn't paying for the whippets. Colin Quinn is paying for the whippets. But Chris Kattan just like runs into whatever bodega and he's like clickety clack clickety clack i want to go and have some pg level phone sex with my credit vixen on your credit card right so he calls her up and it turns out it's approved and this is just a reminder in the film that hey this character exists and and that may be important later it's not and then eh, i mean it's as important as anything but at benny zadir's house uh, we finally get there. It's a uh, it's a big party, and they make a plan for a meeting with Zadir at the party at his house. There's a lot of people there. It's a big mansion, and there are a lot of women in bathing suits, and one of them is topless. So you do get some gratuitous nudity. I don't know why. And in the meeting where Chris Katana will Ferris say that they're going to discuss this, this nightclub idea, there's a topless woman who gets out of the pool and she approaches Chris Katana and will Ferrell. And then they respond with this barrage of random words that make Garth's finger sucking word scramble sound somewhat coherent. It's just kind of stupid. I had the same thing in my notes that they turn into a couple of Garth's. As the gold diggers try to get down with him. And it, it's a good reminder for our underage listeners out there. The first time you have sex with a lady, and honestly, put the earbuds in a little tighter. This is just for you. Act like you've fucking been there. All right? <laughs> I don't care if you come in your pants the second she touches your leg. You just say, that's how I do it. <laughs> Or if a naked lady just gets out of a pool, act like you've seen a naked lady before. Right. Don't just homina, homina, homina. Ask your kids, ask your parents about homina, homina, homina. Ask your grandparents uh, about that. <laughs> but the whole thing is that they're, they're constantly in search of getting laid, but they're completely incompetent. Like they are with everything. They're incompetent at even that task, which requires... Very little effort on most men's parts. If you find the right lady, she'll get on top and do all the hard work for you. If you find the right guy, same thing. Yeah, I'm, let's not, you know, I don't mean to prejudice our listeners with my heteronormative read of this film. Uh, but I'm saying, you know, for our characters who seem to be heterosexual. And by the way, kudos to this movie for not making Lachlan Monroe a secret gay character. That there's not a gay panic moment in this movie, which is rare. 
for these Saturday Night Live films. So the gold diggers find them, uh, try to fuck Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan. Our heroes, again, question mark, are too incompetent to read the situation right. And the gold diggers finally have to just strip them of their clothes and throw a fucking on them, as the Pope uh, once said. <laughs> After they have sex, for for what turns out to be the first time, they meet up in the hallway and high five again to insert just a little bit of reality. Have you ever immediately after sex thought, I wish my friend was here so we could high five because right now my hand stinks of sex and ass because of all the fucking I've been getting up to. And the, what I really want to do is slap hands with someone whose hands is in the same state. No, it doesn't work that way. In fact, this scene where they come out and they high five, it, it in a weird way, it undermines and makes the characters less defined than they are. They feel more shallow and two-dimensional. It's really weird. You know, like like the more that you learn about this, it's like trying to remember a dream that you had and as you describe it to someone, it just slowly disappears. As these characters do more, the less defined and memorable they become. Speaking of, in an effort to talk about this movie a little less, I had that experience recently because I had a dream that I was, I believe I was a student teacher at an elementary school. But the important part of the dream is that one of the teachers at said elementary school was David Lynch, who was teaching a class of kindergartners. And I, it's one of those dreams I wish I could just live in. Yeah, that is weird. Take out your crayons, kids. <laughs> it's time to draw your innermost fears. I love David Lynch so much. I can't imagine David Lynch teaching anything other than what not to do. I'll tell you a quick David Lynch story uh, for the kids at home. There was a great moment where someone said, I think it was about a racer head. It was a, a, a critic who was interviewing David Lynch, and he said, so I understand that you once said that a, a racer head was your most personally religious film. And uh, David Lynch says, yeah. And he says, would you like to expand on that? And David Lynch said, no. And that was it. I love David Lynch so, so much. The fact that the Cleveland show cast David Lynch to kind of play himself as a bartender on that show, it just, it makes me so happy. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that last season of Twin Peaks, I know you're not a big Twin Peaks person, but that last season of Twin Peaks that uh, he did for Showtime is double barrel david lynch it is so weird and wonderful and strange and i loved everything about it did you know that there's a restaurant that is a knockoff of hooters called twin peaks well is it scantily clad women because that doesn't feel very twin peaks well the twin peaks refer to the twin is two and it the oh it's like their, their breasts <laughs> <laughs> see i'm the kind of asshole that would high five after sex apparently <laughs> i didn't i don't know there's another one um was it the tilted kilt i think is of that that stripe mm -hmm. where it's like hey don't worry about the food boobies enough so at at dad's plant shop the boys our heroes are planning for zadir's meeting and here we have a gag that is pretty good where 
uh, Will Ferrell in preparation for the uh, the big meeting has bought them both planners, like day planners, and they're referring to these clearly blank day planners because they just unwrapped them to confirm that they have time for the meeting about the meeting with uh, Zadir. Within the space of 30 seconds, we get a Macarena and Donald J. Trump joke. Yeah, their dad makes fun of them when stupid and stupider say that they've made some important contacts at the club. And then their dad says, did you dance the Macarena with Donald Trump? Look, this was a joke when this movie came out. Like the audience is like, har, 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 har. That's funny. <laughs> it's pairing things that are no longer relevant. That's the gag. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Just I'm going to stop the show for a moment. All right. All these Trump cameos in movies, all this Home Alone 2 bullshit, him showing up in Zoolander in like two weeks notice. This shit's not funny. It is. It's not funny. None of this is funny. He even showed up. Remember in that Little Rascals remake and he's the the, the dad of the rich asshole kid. Donald Trump being in a movie, just it makes it worse. It does not make it better. It's not funny. And, and, and anybody who sees him in a movie and then like and they just light up like like oh my gosh there's Donald Trump how funny is that it's not like in those Pirates of the Caribbean movies where Keith Richards yeah when Keith Richards shows up you're like oh that's Keith Richards that's funny like how clever is that Donald Trump shows up and it's like somebody farted in an elevator here's another numerical question I'll pose to the audience do you think that there was ever a time and if so, how many people ever were watching, you know, Home Alone 2 or whatever and leaned to their significant other and or person they dragged to a film with them and said, oh, my God, that's Donald Trump. This is going to be good. I think anybody who leaned over when they said, oh, my God, that's Donald Trump. I, I would hope that 100 percent of the people that heard that punched them in the mouth. As though they were, were Jenny from the ladies' man with their bottle of booze in their wedding dress <laughs> trying to make a reference to an episode that we did earlier this season. Yeah, so our two hapless idiots um, leave the flower shop and Emily uh, shows up and, she, again, she's wanting to have sex with Will Ferrell and she's holding these like giant light bulbs in front of her breasts and Will Ferrell should be counting his blessings that she wants to hook up with him. She is a vision. If she showed up in The Ladies' Man, all you would see is a Leon Phelps-shaped cloud of smoke as he dashed off to take care of business. Yeah, especially if she was like, I, I really like making out. Do you like making out? He would just be like, yeah, I think we should do that right now. <laughs> yeah, and then she would get his glowing beautiful phallus as much as she wanted and in fact would probably be a good woman for him because she's very driven yes and not a drunk crawling around a grifter yeah <laughs> but there's another joke that comes up here where stupid and stupid stupid the next scene is that uh a will Ferrell and chris Catan are in an elevator and there is a music version of baby don't hurt me playing and they almost instinctively start doing the head bobble and the way they sell this is incredibly funny it, it's a good gag because it's a real shallow kind of bob of the head that 
matches the music. It's yeah, it's good. Like that's the thing about Chris Kattan. He's great at physical comedy. And when he's not saying anything, I like him a lot more in this movie. When the elevator stops and then the other woman gets on and Will Ferrell acknowledges her. He's like, oh, hello. And he stops bobbing his head. And then he gets back into the rhythm of it. It's very funny. I mean, it, it, it works perfectly. And again, you know, I know we take a lot of, you know, cheap shots at these movies because we're a couple of, of who gives a shit assholes. But there are definitely moments in these films that are very funny and well done. So I want to give credit where credit is due. I laughed out loud at this. Like, you guys are you guys are so funny when this is done and done well. Speaking of credit where credit is due, there's a really funny gag where Chris Kattan is loading fake plants into the plant van. And it's as Will Ferrell is talking to Molly Shannon and he's loading the van in the background. But the gag is that he's trying to throw the plant into the van but he keeps missing so that it's bouncing off the door and the roof and, and all kind like basically this wide open van door is becomes his nemesis and he just can't get this plastic plant in there. And it's really funny. You know, it doesn't translate well to podcasts as I describe it, but it's a great visual gag. It's a great physical gag and it's what makes, some of this movie work it's not the plot because the plot's terrible and it's not the characters because the characters are barely there but they're because you've got two talented comic actors as well as a lot of good actors surrounding them there are moments that come off because this assemblage of people just can't not be funny for the duration of a film so our two idiots go to meet club owner bobby um, at his high rise, you know, business. And then they get thrown out because Colin Quinn um, is upset because they had made a joke about, I don't know, like fucking his mom or his dad or something when they were dealing with the whole whippets thing. And in this, it almost feels like Colin Quinn is being positioned as the bad guy. And in this movie, there is no bad guy. Like even at this moment, like, Oh, he's going to be our, kind of fly in the ointment he is our antagonist but he's not he's just like you guys were dicks to me so i'm going to be dicks to you and then you know he he has them thrown out of the buildings and then bobby the club owner he he ends up saying like oh I have, have you been able to find these two uh morons i want to have a, a follow-up conversation with them chris Catan then following their inability to to meet up with bobby reaches out to the two gold diggers who are now um gold digging two asian men that they are presumably going to have sex with and then ultimately get money and or goods or services. I don't know how their exchange rate works. When I say this out loud, it sounds like that, that these two women might be prostitutes in that they're going to trade sex for money or I don't know, like advantages in life. What I'm getting at is what is the difference between a gold digger and a prostitute? Is it more like forthrightness and just intent? Yeah, and you make uh, a prostitute clap when you leave the room, and you don't do that with a gold digger. I do that with my son. <laughs> when I leave the room, I want you clapping so I know that you're not going through my wallet. Well, it's not. I, it's just, just like clap your hands and stomp your feet so I know that you're not breaking things. <laughs> Fair enough. I think my son might be a prostitute. Does he take weekend trips to Vegas and come back with a lot of cash on hand? 
I need to have a talk with my son. You probably should. Let me show you my own naivete. Probably the second time I was in Vegas, you know, for some convention or another, because that's where you go. Because conventions aren't depressing enough. You have to surround it with human misery and failings. Which is Las Vegas. And I'm walking through the lobby of the the Rio is where we were. It does not matter. They are all the exact same. So I'm, I'm walking through the lobby of the Rio on my way out. I was actually leaving. And I see this very petite, attractive, you know, let's say like Filipino girl, maybe kind of Asian, but not Japanese or Korean. Just say, just say prostitute. That's what I'm getting at. Chad is I didn't know that at the time. I just thought she was an attractive young lady because the sun was up. And I thought that when much like vampires, when the sun comes out, prostitutes have to go back to their shelters during the day. Mm -hmm. And so she's approaching me and I pass her and she goes, morning honey and gave me a wink and for a solid five steps as those words were ringing in my ear i thought she really liked me then the realization came and i realized that i am a dumb dumb person was she standing next to an atm and holding a butterfly knife in her hand (laughs) no she was just walking past me that's why i had the five steps of like I think I think she liked me was because we were both just walking through the lobby of the casino. And then I realized like, oh, she was a lady of the night, Chad. She didn't really think I was an attractive stranger. If you like pina coladas (laughs) (laughs) and having sex with prostitutes after they they called the, the gold diggers. Who, in fact, are are not prostitutes. And I, w- I would say that the difference between is that being a gold digger is speculative, whereas being a prostitute is much more transactional. Right. I think it goes back to my point. Is this about being forthright? And, and what is your intent? You're saying I'm going to be a unattractive companion to a man that I believe is eventually going to marry me. And then that's where the grift comes. Whereas with a prostitute, I think that is a far more honest situation where you are saying, I have money. I understand that this can be exchanged for goods and services. You are offering your body as a good and or service. How about I give you some money for that? Honesty is the best policy. So prostitutes Ugh. win. Hooray for prostitutes. You are never going to hear me badmouth a sex worker of any stripe. I think they are doing the Lord's work in many ways. Certainly the work of Mary Magdalene, one might say. I, I, I honestly don't understand. It goes back to the George Carlin thing of selling is legal and fucking is legal. Why isn't selling fucking legal? <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense to me, and I don't understand why. You know, I'm not king of the world yet. We're kind of at the end of Act 2 with this movie. We because have, when the- We have talked so little about this movie in this episode, and I'm so proud of us. <laughs> you know, we're barreling towards the end of this thing. The The gold diggers show up, and they see the plant van, and they the <laughs> our heroes admit that they are not, in fact, employed anywhere at the moment. And so our gold diggers uh, blow them off. And then we get on the freeway and Chris Kattan, who is upset, says that Will Ferrell is dragging him down and they kind of break up as brothers. I want to go on record here. At this point in the movie, we get 
an, an insertion of REM's Everybody Hurts when the two brothers have a falling out. And I just want to go on the record and say that I hate this song. I hate most of REM's music. And at this moment in my notes, I have in big letters, I hate this movie. I really hate this movie. I hope you enjoyed that, Chad, because there's a really shitty cover coming up in a bit. But Everybody Hurts is a a terrible, terrible song. I'll tell you, I like the REM album Green quite a bit. Kids ask your parents what an album is. And I think cover to cover, that's pretty good. I like some of their early stuff. Uh, Eponymous uh, has a lot of good stuff on it. But after Green, once you get into like Automatic for the People and those those records, uh, kids ask your parents what records were. And I think that is where it becomes slim pickings. As soon as you had those crossovers with the B-52s where Michael Stipe is showing up on B-52s videos, the whole world just went to shit. I, in fact, I kind of traced the decline of Western civilization back to those moments. Yeah, I, I don't like R.E.M. That's probably a shorter way to say what I did. Um, so, <laughs> Chris Kattan goes, Chris Kattan, after their breakup, by himself, he goes back to the club, and he like tries to, to drive fuck-rape women who, again, reject his advances. How is he not in jail? And in, and, and, and also on top of that, in the scene there where he's in the club, there is this biker in leather who seems kind of happy to receive his advances. So at worst, this is what, a gay joke? And at best, this biker found a kindred spirit in this, what, tiny, big-lipped man that is into dehumanizing women yeah you kind of hope that they fucked in the bathroom you know just now that chris katan's gotten a taste of it he's just like i don't i don't care what what hole it it is and now that i say that though i realize that there is no way that the biker guy was catching he was definitely the pitcher in that scenario (laughs) will ferrell um after the breakup is working out in the gym and then emily who's adorable for 90% of this movie, she shows up and she's wanting to hook up with Will Ferrell. Uh, and he's wearing this purple unitard instead of his blue. And I guess that was dirty. And then she tells him that, that she's had drunken orgies and she went to college and she's pretty loose and free with her body. And then Craig, the junior Gary Busey we were talking about earlier, he's there listening and he's like, whoa, this is awesome, which it is. And then Will Ferrell mm-hmm. is just like, uh, whatever. And then Emily says that like, Hey, we, we should go see David Copperfield together because I like the way that he makes things appear and disappear. And you know what? I think that was a reference to uh, like the way penises go in and out of vaginas when they have sex. That wasn't my read of it. I just thought she was a magic fan, but (laughs) the next scene they're at the David Copperfield show. And then Will Ferrell's character puts his arm around Emily, like implying that He's romantically interested in her. And as he puts his arm around her, her shoulder, she takes his hand and just slides it down onto her breast, which, yeah, that is very, very good. That is a good sign (laughs) that you will be able to have sex with a lady. That means that you are going to get some tang. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We should have done this whole thing as (laughs) dueling Leon Phelps's, but, you know, live and learn. But immediately after this scene, Emily shows up and she's a totally different character. 
she's just this domineering harpy and she's a hundred percent less horned up, which is not good. She's throwing away all of Will Ferrell's neck chains and his disco balls. And I was just like, what the hell is going on here? I want to point out that the biggest travesty occurring in this scene is the careless whispers, uh, cover, which I, I didn't look up who did the cover. I don't care. It's an affront to God and man. That is a perfectly fine song that is absolutely ruined, root even, in this scene. I stand by the fact that the line, guilty feet have got no rhythm, is one of the great pop, pop song lines of all time. I would say second to that is probably Wang Dang, Sweet Poontang. Yeah, that is the good line. <laughs> That has many words I like. So in this montage of uh, Will Ferrell being emasculated, where you're like, oh, she's becoming a harpy. This is going bad for Will Ferrell. We then see Chris Kattan doing whippets, and he opens a window. Watching him fuck. Who's getting fucked in a hot tub, but it's Will Ferrell and Emily. Which I'm like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. What kind of seismograph is going on here? It's like, we're, we're up, we're down, we're up, we're down. Like, that looks awesome. This looks awful. That's fantastic. This is terrible. Hey, look, you got to work at relationships, okay? For every sex in a hot tub moment, you got a scene where she's going to try to teach a business and you're too stupid to learn it. He doesn't know a good thing when he sees it. Because then the next scene, they're in bed together, hanging out. And Emily is talking about their future and how they're going to combine these businesses and then what happens after all this boring stuff they start having sex and then will ferrell so he's like whoa whoa things are going way too fast and says that she's talking like they're already married and then she's so happy that she gives him a blowjob immediately after they finished having sex my advice to will ferrell put a ring on that yeah yeah, the whole gag here is that she, <laughs> gag, no pun intended, right? Am I right, fellas? Is that when she hears marriage, she takes that as a proposal, and that's where the blowjob comes in. To your point, he is a hapless dum-dum, and to find a woman who is like, you know what, don't worry your pretty little head about it, let me handle things, and then you're probably going to end up being a stay-at-home husband, I'm going to handle the business, and then you get blowjobs. Oh, my God. Like that, when, when you say it like that, it just sounds so awesome. Right, especially if you're incompetent. And stupid. Like Will Ferrell is. Right. Yeah. Even if you are competent, even if you're a titan of industry, you know what? Don't worry your pretty little head. Just stay home, do nothing, and I'll give you blowjobs and fuck you. That's basically the premise of most pornography, right? Where you fall ass backwards into ass. And it turns out to be great. And that's exactly what's happening with Will Ferrell here. Except he's too much of a dum-dum to realize like, oh, it ain't ever going to get any better than this. Chris Kattan is back and he's going to the club and he's with his buddy Craig or AKA Gary Busey Jr. And he tells Chris Kattan that Will Ferrell is now getting married to the world's greatest woman, Emily. And how does he not know that his own brother is engaged? 
Like, why wouldn't his mother or his father come and tell him this? First of all, because they have given up on him. And that's been clear through much of the film where they're like, they want Will Ferrell to work at the store because he's stupid, but he seems to be good hearted. And maybe there's some clay to mold there. But Chris Kattan, they've totally written off. You know, it's like I, I know I know people who have a couple of kids and there's the one that they invest in that they love, that they nurture. And then there's the one that's like, eh, I mean, I guess he's got a good personality. The next scene, we're at this engagement party where Emily is openly blowing a strawberry at the dinner table. I mean, she's sucking on this pretty dramatically, but then she kind of gets demanding and she wants Will Ferrell to make a toast about their engagement. I don't understand why they didn't introduce this sort of angry, crazy side of her earlier, which Let's be honest, because I didn't think of it until Act 3. And then Will Ferrell tells his dad that he's like, I want to call off the wedding. And his dad says, yeah, you can't do that because she's the greatest thing ever. And then Will Ferrell goes over to see his brother the night before the wedding. (sighs) This movie's awful. And he he tells him he wants him to be his best man. But then Chris Kattan pretends to be a phone answering machine and it. He's not, he's there, but he's not. So Will Ferrell asks uh, Gary Busey Jr. to be his best man at the wedding the next day, right? Yeah. What I really like is we get a Mark McKinney cameo. So we we have Mark McKinney and Molly Shannon in the same scene uh, as we approach the day of the wedding. And it reminds me again of how much I like Superstar. And also Mark McKinney as the, the, the father here has some hilarious reactions, just facial expressions, to Molly Shannon's vows that she has written for herself. And then Molly, before she can slip the ring, you know, as we we get to the, do you take this dum-dum to be your lawfully wedded husband and, and instead you could literally have your pick of men here. But fine, whatever, to have this dum-dum to have in the hold. And she's like, absolutely. And there's a joke I like here where uh, when the, when Mark McKinney says to Will Ferrell, do you take this woman to heaven to hold in, in sickness and in health? And he kind of shrugs and says, yeah, my dad already paid the caterer. And I thought that was kind of a funny line. Then Chris Kattan shows up to say anything, the reception by holding a boombox above his head, kids ask your parents about that, and is playing the Hathaway song. What is love? I am so pleased at how much Leon Phelps showed up in this episode. So Will Ferrell stupidly runs away from Molly Shannon, and this is the point where we abandon all logic and sense of reason, uh, where Lachlan Monroe says... Hey, since you're here, Molly Shannon, and you seem awesome, how about you just marry me? Molly Shannon strangely agrees to this shotgun wedding, and she and Lachlan Monroe, uh, Freddie vs. Jason fame, a.k.a. Gary Gary Busey Jr., yeah, they end up getting married, so he's the real winner of this film as far as I'm concerned. Oh my god. That happens, and then we cut to the movie we care less about, where Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan do the entire Jerry Maguire, you had me at hello scene. I don't know that this is time appropriate in terms of the reference, but also 
That's a movie that doesn't hold up as well as you wish it would. Is this movie worse than it's Pat? No. All right, hold on. Let me let me ask this a, a different way. If we can agree that it's Pat is an intentionally bad movie, and this movie is trying to purposefully be funny. Is it worse than it's Pat? No, no, no. I mean, even if you're doing it's Pat, the movie as some sort of ironic Andy Kaufman esque finger to the man, it is still so painfully awful to watch. Even if you're doing it on purpose, the character of Pat Riley is one of the most offensively terrible characters I've seen in a movie and no matter the reason behind it, no matter the motivation for writing the character that way, I still got to sit through a movie featuring that character. All right. One more question. Uh-huh. You have a, a copy of it's Pat in one hand and you have a nod <laughs> at the Roxbury in the other hand. And uh-huh. the person in front of you is someone that you, you know and love and care about that you have similar comedic sensibilities. And they said, Hey, give me one of those movies to watch. Which one are you going to hand over? Uh, I hate to ask a question in response (laughs) to a question. You say I love this person. Do I believe that they have the sort of anthropological interest in movies that I do, where sometimes you just want to see how bad movies can get? This is Sophie's choice. What are you handing over? You hand it over it's Pat. Right. I no, I get I no, I give him a night at the Roxbury and say, Hey, there's a couple of laughs in this movie. And then they say, What's in your other hand? And I punch him right in the nose and run away with it. See, I'm going full on Dan Aykroyd from the Twilight Zone movie, where it's just like, Hey, you wanna see something really scary? You wanna see something really fucked up? <laughs> Check this yeah. shit out. Again, that's the anthropological move where you're like, Hey, have you ever seen German poo videos? Well, here's one. The answer to that question for both of us is yes. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, that is that is a dark chapter in our mutual history, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was awful. What's worse? It's Pat or that German poo video that we saw. The German poo video because that was something that we watched with the fast forward in hand. Like you couldn't just stop. And let that thing run for its normal runtime, which was longer than you thought. I mean, that was actual human beings. You know, you can stop. You know, you can stop. Is cinematic feces. You're right. You know, you can stop there. You're right. That German poo video versus it's Pat poo video is hands down worse. That was awful. The poo video is maybe the worst thing I've ever seen committed to film. Yeah, I don't think there's anything that I've ever seen with my own two eyes that are worse than that poo video. And I've seen some heinous shit. I'm not I'm not saying that I, I watch like beheading videos or, or anything like that. I think that's that is a, a bridge too far for me. But, you know, I've seen a couple of those websites where it's like, hey, here's here's the crime scene photo of the black dahlia and shit like that. Some stuff that, you know, human eyes weren't meant to see. And I'd, I'd spent all day browsing through that shitty subreddit over a poo video again. <laughs> but anyway, so after we do G- Jerry Maguire, we cut to Richard Grieco giving Dan Hedaya a sort of impromptu therapy about his feelings about Chris Kattan, where Dan Hedaya is like, I guess I don't like him because he reminds me of me. 
I don't know what the point of the scene is other than to have Dan Hedaya come around as a parent. I think that the word that you're looking for here to describe the situation is that it is awful. It's just awful. It's just stupid and it's forced. One, why is Richard Grieco at this wedding? It doesn't make any sense. They don't know him. He's a quote celebrity how he would be there doesn't make any sense why he's talking to their dad doesn't make any sense i mean it makes sense that like this is a joke and it's funny and the fact that their dad hates chris Catan because they're so much alike no they're not their dad is a successful business owner chris Catan is a serial pseudo date rapist this movie's stupid it would almost make more sense if it were emilio estevez Almost. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a toss up, but it, it makes equally as much sense that it's Richard Grieco. After we get the Richard Grieco therapy session, we cut to them uh, out at the club again uh, or out on the town again, and they see an inside out club and they go to the bouncer who tells them that they are, in fact, on the list. Uh, a contrast to the scene with Green Mile earlier. Inside, they find Benny Zadir, who tells them, hey, I loved your idea. I kept waiting for you to try to get in touch with me, but I couldn't wait forever. So I went ahead and took your idea and made this club, and you're now partners of mine. None of which would ever happen in the real world because, A, he opens himself up to the lawsuit of uh, stealing this intellectual property. You can't cut someone in on a business deal that they are not aware of. There's just a lot of legal entanglements that I found with this scene. It's also stupid that he knows their names so he can put them on the VIP list to get in, but he can't just go find them. That doesn't make any sense. And then as they're just walking around the club, everyone in the club knows them by face. So he's what? He has pictures of them and has said, like, be on the lookout of these two heroes of the nightclub scene and when you see them kiss their ass because they are are in some way signing the checks for the money that you earn it's just stupid right it's like the comedy store where you as you're going in it's just pictures of chris katan and will ferrell the cinema light bulb surrounding it like a marquee just a flashing arrows like these guys are your hero. Right. It, it's just whatever. To wrap all this movie up, uh, especially with some storylines that nobody gives a shit about, Chris Catan goes up to the bar of what? His own club. And then what? He recognizes the voice of the woman beside him. Who could it be but the credit vixen? Who cares about this? Nobody. I mean, that well, makes- Chad, let me dare you to care about something else. Guess who the credit fixin's best friend is? Leon Phelps, the ladies' man? Oh, if only, Chad. No, it's Hottie Cop, a.k.a. Sergeant Knockers. A.k.a. Captain Hubbana Hubbana Hubbana. (laughs) And she rolls back in, and you're just like, who the hell? Like, oh, it's TJ Hooker from the thing, and nobody cares. Nobody cares. This is just stupid. Yeah, and then they all start to dance. And then we pad the runtime out a little bit more with credits featuring pictures uh, of the cast members. And that goes on for a while. And then that's it. And then much like the fart in the elevator mentioned earlier, it dissipates and the air is clean again. I really, really hated this movie. 
I did not like it at all. It's a perfect ending for this season of just sort of landing with a... Yeah, I, I like. I don't think my feelings about this movie run as deep because there's just not that much to like and or hate. But that's why I hate it so much is that you have talented, funny people. And it's just like, shouldn't you be delivering more than this? This really feels like the least you can do. Yeah, that's what really the movie should have been called is the least we can do. I'll, I'll tell you, it benefits from a very quick runtime. There are a couple of gags that, that do work in the movie for me. The audience benefits from a really quick runtime. Well, that's what I mean, is that you're not married to this movie. Uh, Molly Shannon is pretty good in it. Like you said, it, it's kind of a whole lot of nothing. It's a real a real cotton candy kind of movie where it, it it's entirely insubstantial. There are, like I said, a couple of gags that work for me just fine. I didn't hate it. I certainly have no interest in watching it again anytime soon. If it showed up on, I don't know, like if I if I walked in the door and it was on, I wouldn't demand that. Like, God damn it, turn this off right now. Like, you know, it's it's not offensively bad to me. Like its pad is. It's just kind of nothing. As we are wont to do, how would you rank the six movies from this season? From best to worst. Okay. I know I, I know the top, I know the bottom. I need you to fill in the middle four. All right. Obviously, Superstar is the superstar of this particular season. And uh, feel free to appreciate what I did there. I would go, it's Pat, or I'm sorry, Superstar, uh, Stuart Saves His Family, Ladies Man, Wayne's World 2... Night at the Roxbury, it's Pat. My list was Superstar. Ugh, this is just... Super <laughs> right, there's a big drop-off. I know, it, it's huge. Superstar, of, of all the movies that we've seen this season, whether you've listened to all of our commentaries and, and our, our sort of insights, and Superstar is the, is the only one I can recommend. After that, I put Wayne's World 2, because I think it had the most laughs for me. Um, Stuart Saves His Family... Ladies, man, Roxbury, and it's Pat. Yeah. So, I mean, we flip one movie there right. or a pair of movies there. But yeah, I mean, it, when you get to Night at the Roxbury, it's Pat, those bottom two are pretty rugged. And I mean, even then, I, I with Stuart Saves His Family coming in at number two for me, that is a weird recommend. It's just like, hey, have you had a rough time of things? <laughs> Stuart saves his family is going to remind you of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of uh, that's kind of it. I mean, Wayne's World Two is another real nothing of a movie, and I, I think I like that less than you because the first one is it feels like it's at least something, and and they just get it so wrong with Wayne's World Two. That season two, man. That uh, we have done it. Another six episodes of movies that range from. Eh, to huh? That's what we try to provide you, you know, from mediocre yeah. to lukewarm. That's our sweet spot. It, we call it the Goldilocks zone. It's not just right. It's just, huh? it's fine. But I got to tell you, uh, you know, obviously we're going to be taking uh, a couple of weeks off. We come back and I'm very excited about the next season because there is some genuine 
head scratchers in the mix um as well as some really over the top shit as a teaser to that for those that are listening to uh this show as they're released our upcoming season is monsters are universal and we're going to take a look at six films that were inspired by the classic universal monster films there's a lot going on there. And the majority of these films were, were movies that were made in the 1990s uh, as well. Um, I'm trying to think, are there any of the ones that we have selected that are out? We've got, there's, there's a few. There's one recent one that is, is going to slip in that is within the past couple of years. And it it is a stinker. Yeah, absolutely. But, but also understanding kind of the history of Universal Studios. Um, their monster films, and not only the six that we are going to do a deeper dive on, but understanding sort of the context around the books or mythology that they're based upon, um, how those films were originally received, how they were reinterpreted over the years, and then looking at arguably the most recent interpretation of these films to understand, uh, again, the people behind these remakes and then you get to hear our hilarious commentary on uh why we think they're uh awful or great or not uh there, there's a healthy mix in there and uh so in the meantime folks you can head over to pick six movies.com which is a website on the internet where you can listen to past shows and also leave us some comments you can do the same thing if you want to email us, which is electronic mail. Uh, and that address is pixixmovies at gmail.com. If, uh, if you want to drop us a line there and tell us which, uh, what you think of the show. And I don't know. I mean, I guess you can suggest a theme for a future season. I mean, we got about 27 of them, but you might as well throw another one into the mix. Yeah. If you like Twitter, we're on Twitter. We don't tweet a lot. You can catch us on Facebook. You know how it works. It's it's the internet. We're around, and uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. So uh, rate, review, share, tell a friend. Let us know what you think. Um, we're having a blast doing the show, and uh, we appreciate any feedback uh, that you can provide. So thank you so much for spending uh, some time of your, your busy day with us, and uh, we are looking forward to bringing you some uh, spooky monster movies here uh, in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, it's so scary. You are frightening me. That is crazy. Yeah, you made my wing shrink. That is a real weenie. Sure. <laughs> <laughs>